Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Have you ever noticed how many significant events recorded in the Bible actually take place on mountains? Think about it for a moment. We're told that following the great flood, the ark of Noah and his family came to rest where? The book of Genesis says it was Mount Ararat. The giving of the law to the Israelite nation took place where? On Mount Sinai. Moses, after wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, caught his first glimpse of the promised land from the summit of Mount Nebo. The prophet Elijah confronted Queen Jezebel and the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. And following his resurrection, we're told that our Lord Jesus Christ ascended to the Father from what location? We're told that it was from the Mount of Olives. Yes, the Bible is literally filled with these mountaintop experiences. And here in today's gospel lesson from Luke chapter 9, we come to yet another. In fact, we come to what is perhaps the greatest, most significant mountaintop experience of them all. And I say that because few events had a more profound or lasting impact on the life of the disciples than this one. Years later, when he was facing the prospect of martyrdom in Rome, we're told that the Apostle Peter hearkened back to this event on the mountain in order to find strength and courage to meet his coming trials. In his second epistle, Peter said this, he said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's interesting, isn't it? We would have thought that Peter, as he's facing the prospect of death, would have hearkened back to something like the resurrection, to Jesus' great victory over the power of death and the grave in order to find strength. But no, Peter is adamant in this second epistle. It was this time spent with Jesus on the mountain that gave him the courage and the wherewithal to persevere. Well, why is that? What is it about this event on this unnamed mountain that made such a profound impression upon the Lord's disciples? Well, the answer to that question is found in the location of this event in Luke's narrative. This ninth chapter that we have before us today begins with Peter's great confession in Caesarea Philippi, where he confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we're told that after this confession was made, Jesus proceeded to unpack the full implications of it. He went on to explain to his disciples, for instance, how he had to go to Jerusalem as the Messiah, and how he was going to be betrayed by his own people into the hands of his enemies, and how he was going to die on a cross and on the third day be raised again. And Luke tells us that when the disciples heard this news, they were deeply troubled. In fact, Peter blurted out, God forbid, this must never happen to you. But Jesus went on to explain that actually this was the nature of his ministry. This is why he had come to earth in the first place. Moreover, he says, this is the nature of all true Christian discipleship. If you look at the verses that immediately precede today's lesson, 
Jesus says this to his disciples. He said, if any of you would seek to come after me, he must first deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is reminding us that the Christian life, my friends, is not a life of ease and comfort. It is a life of self-denial. It is a life of suffering. It is about the cross. It is about dying to self and living for him. So you see, this ninth chapter really is a turning point in the story. Jesus, from this point forward, is setting his face toward Jerusalem. He has embraced the fate of the cross, and there will be no turning back, and he is calling on his disciples to do the same. And yet, and yet Jesus knows these men so well, doesn't he? He knows that this message of the cross, this message of self-denial, has filled them with a sense of anxiety, with a sense of fear. There's much that they don't understand, and he knows that there is still much for them to learn. And perhaps for this reason alone, Jesus decides, out of compassion, to allow some of them at least to catch a glimpse of what lies beyond the cross, beyond the suffering and the pain, what lies beyond the self-denial. And so Luke says he took with him Peter and John and James and led them up this high mountain. Now you may be wondering to yourself, well, why did he only take these three? Why did only Peter, James, and John have the privilege of seeing what lies beyond the cross, beyond the death, beyond the self-denial and the suffering? I mean, Jesus had 12 disciples. What about the other nine? Jesus said, some of you who are standing here today will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God in glory. But we can't help but ask, why not the rest? The gospel never really tells us. But I don't think it's difficult to figure out you may recall that at the time of the Lord's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus took aside three of his disciples and asked them to pray with him. And those three disciples were these three disciples, Peter, John, and James, which means that these were the three men who had the opportunity to see Jesus in his moment of greatest testing. They were there when he was in such agony that he was literally sweating drops of blood. They were there as Jesus was pleading with the Father that this cup of suffering might pass. And they were there when the Father gave the response to that request. The only time he ever answered his son in this way, he said, no. No, this cup cannot pass. And so I think it's because these men saw Jesus in his moment of greatest weakness, greatest testing, that they were also given the privilege of seeing him in splendor and glory. There are four things that happen up here on this mountain that I want us to take note of this morning. If you're taking notes, you'll want to jot these four things down. First, I want us to note that an alteration took place on the mountain. Second, I want you to notice that a conversation 
took place on the mountain. Third, I want you to see the reaction on the mountain. And finally, I want us to take note of the declaration that took place on the mountain. So those four things, they're all important. We want to look at them each in turn. So first of all, the alteration that took place on this mountain. Look at verses 28 and 29. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. We generally refer to this event as the transfiguration. And if you look at the front cover of your bulletin today, you'll see that today is the feast of the transfiguration. But the word that Matthew and Mark use in their version of the story to describe what happened to Jesus on this occasion is an interesting word. It is the Greek word metamorpho, from which we get our term metamorphosis. It literally means a change, a transformation took place. And I point that out because I think something gets lost in Luke's retelling of this event. Luke simply tells us that as he was praying, the appearance of Jesus' face was altered. The RSV, the Revised Standard Version, says that the Lord's countenance was altered. Now, what does that mean when a person's countenance is altered? Most of us understand that to mean that there is a, a change of expression or a change of demeanor. For instance, on one occasion, we're told a rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And the young man shot back, oh yes, and I've kept them all since I was a youth. At which point Jesus, I'm sure with a raised eyebrow, replied, oh really? Well, then there's only one thing that you require. Go, sell all of your possessions, give the money to the poor, and come follow me. And the text says that no sooner had those words passed from Jesus' lips than, listen to this, the young man's countenance fell. As to say, he was sorrowful, he frowned, he was chagrined because he had great wealth. When a young woman falls in love, we can see a change in her countenance, can't we? We say, oh, it's, it's written all over her face. So a change in countenance can be just that. It can be just a change of expression or a change of demeanor. But what I want you to understand is that that is not what happened to Jesus on this occasion. The second part of the verse makes the point clear. And his clothing became dazzling white. His clothing became dazzling white. It was as though there was a light. Not shining on Jesus, but a light that was actually emanating from him. A light that was so brilliant, so glorious, that it, it altered his face and even made his clothing dazzling white. You may recall in the Old Testament, whenever Moses went in to meet with the Lord, whether that was in the tent of meeting or up on the mountain, whenever he returned to the people, he always had to veil his face because there was a glow, a brilliance that was on him as a result of his time spent with the Lord. The people could not even look at it. 
Well, you see, something like this was happening to Jesus up there on the mountain while he was praying, and the disciples had never seen anything like it. Now, they had seen Jesus pray on any number of occasions. That was part of his daily routine, but they had never seen anything like this. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, said this. He said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is what the disciples beheld there on the mountain. It was the glory of God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, of the tiniest atom to the grandest galaxy. Glory, majesty, splendor, and effulgence that was Christ by right. A glory that he had set aside, but he would soon take up again never to put down. And they had never seen anything like that before. Reminds me of that scene in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, where the hobbit Frodo offers the ring of power to the elven queen Galadriel. And she knows that if she puts that on, she's going to become all-powerful, majestic, beautiful. This is how she puts it. She said, I shall be beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night. I shall be as fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain. I shall be as dreadful as the storm and the lightning, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. What an image. Peter Jackson does a beautiful job with this in the movie. Now, if you know the story, you know that Galadriel does not take the ring. She passes the test, as it were, because she understands that no mortal being can wield that kind of power and authority. And yet, that is precisely what the disciples saw in the face of Jesus there on the mountain. A glory, a majesty, a splendor, an honor, and an authority. Some years ago, J.B. Phillips, the Bible translator, wrote a little book entitled, Your God is Too Small. And truth be known, that was the problem for the disciples on this occasion. These men thought they knew Jesus. I mean, after all, they had been following up and down the length and breadth of Palestine. They'd sat under his teaching. They'd witnessed his miracles. They'd broken bread by the campfire with him. They'd slept at his side. They thought they knew him. All of a sudden, they were seeing Jesus in a way that they had never seen him before, unveiled in majesty and honor. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you seen Jesus like that? Have you seen Jesus and his glory and his power and his honor? Or is your God too small. St. Clair Ferguson, great Scottish preacher, said this is the primary deficiency in the modern day church. He says today Jesus seems 
small to us. Jesus seems incidental. The Jesus of the modern day is the Jesus who will tidy up your life and fix all your problems. He says, but that is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the New Testament is the Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The great I am. The Jesus to whom one day every knee shall bow. The Jesus who on this occasion displays the brilliance, the splendor, the effulgence of his personal glory. So that's the first thing we need to note. We need to note this alteration that took place in Jesus. The disciples beheld him for who he really is. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. But here's the second thing we need to note. And that's the conversation that takes place on this mountain. Look at verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine what this occasion was like for those three disciples, Peter, John, and James? I mean, you almost feel bad for these guys. They thought they were going up the mountain to a prayer meeting. And what they get up there and discover is that they have been ushered into an anteroom of heaven itself. And here are these two great Old Testament saints, Moses and Elijah. Two great national heroes. I suppose for us, since this is President's Day weekend and George Washington's birthday, it would be like us seeing George Washington, the father of our nation, and Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, right before our very eyes. These were great heroes for these men. Now, we're never told exactly how it was that they recognized that it was Moses and Elijah. But apparently there was no doubt whatsoever as to their true identity, nor any doubt whatsoever as to their true significance, because every Jew knew that Moses and Elijah represented those two great sections of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And here they are talking with Jesus. But what I want us to notice today is not the men. It's not Moses and Elijah. I want us to notice the conversation they were having with Jesus. We're told that they were talking to him about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, given the context, we know exactly what that departure is. It was Jesus' death. Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about his death that he was about to accomplish on the cross in Jerusalem. Now, the Greek word that is translated departure here, I'm throwing a lot of Greek at you, but sometimes the Greek is helpful. The Greek word for departure here is very significant. It is the word exodus. Now, whenever you hear that word exodus, what immediately springs to your mind? Well, I can tell you exactly what came into the mind of Peter, John, and James. It was that great saving moment in the history of their nation when God had delivered them from their bondage. 
You know the story. The Hebrews had been slaves of the Egyptians for over 400 years. It was an oppressive environment. They lived under the lash. They had to make bricks without straw. And God determined to deliver his people from their bondage. And so he rained down a series of terrible plagues upon the Egyptians. He raised up Moses. Moses went to Pharaoh, demanded that he let people go. Pharaoh refused, and so God brought all of these terrible plagues upon the Egyptians, the worst one being the last, the death of the firstborn. The angel of death was going to pass through the land of Egypt, and the firstborn in every house would die. But you remember that God made provision for his own people, didn't he? He told them to take a lamb, to slaughter that lamb, and take the blood of that lamb and place it over the lentils and doorposts of their house. And when the angel of death passed through the land, seeing the lamb's blood, he would pass over that house. This marked the beginning of the exodus, God's deliverance of his people from slavery. Well, listen, it's no accident that that is the word that is used here to describe Jesus' death. Because what it means is that Jesus, by his death upon the cross, was going to accomplish something that was analogous to and yet even greater than that great deliverance that took place in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, by his death, would become the Lamb of God. And it is by his blood that you and I are saved. Saved from the power of the angel of death. And not only would Jesus become the Passover lamb, that's why we sometimes say Christ our Passover is sacrifice for us, but he would also become, listen to this, the firstborn who would die. The firstborn who would die for your sins and mine, that by his sacrifice, Jesus Christ might accomplish for you and for me the great exodus, the great deliverance from our bondage, not to some political enemy like the Egyptians or the Romans, but he would deliver us from our true oppressor, from Satan, from sin, from death, from grave, from the shame. And he alone would be able to do it. We have an old hymn that we sometimes sing on Good Friday that goes like this. There was no other good enough to pay the price for sin. He alone could unlock the door of heaven and let us in. By his death, Jesus becomes the Passover lamb, the firstborn who deliver us, delivers us by his great exodus out of spiritual bondage into liberty. So that's the second thing to note there on the mountain, this conversation that Moses and Elijah are happening, having with Jesus about his great exodus that he would accomplish for his people. Now here's the third thing to notice, an alteration, a conversation, and a reaction. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents or booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. 
not knowing what he said. I suppose if there is one word to describe Peter at this point in his life, it is the word impetuous. Peter was an impetuous man. He was the, the kind of person that always acted first and then thought about the consequences later. The classic, ready, fire, aim. And that characteristic is on full display here in this text. What is the very first thing that Peter says after he has just seen Jesus shining in the glory of God Almighty? What's the first thing that he says after he has heard these two Old Testament saints bear witness to the fact that Jesus, by his death, would provide deliverance from bondage, the great exodus? Peter's response is, it is good that we are here. Now, you've got to ask yourself, what did he mean by that? Did Peter mean, oh, it is good that we are here to, to be given this great privilege, this great spiritual insight? Hallelujah. Or did he mean, well, it's good that we are here as opposed to those other nine disciples who didn't get to come along and wouldn't understand any of this anyway. Or did he mean, it's good that we are here. Translate, Jesus, it's a good thing you brought us along because who else is going to build these booths or these tents? See, it's worth asking the question because you'll recall Peter was a man who had a tendency to make great boasts not knowing what he said. I said earlier in this chapter, he confesses Jesus as the Christ. Two verses later, he gets rebuked by the Lord, get thee behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter took it upon himself to lecture Jesus on what it means to be the Messiah. Or think about the Last Supper. Jesus says in a very somber tone to his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter raises his hand and he said, it won't be me. Lord, I'm going with you to prison even to death. And Jesus said to him, Peter, I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And he did. Is it any wonder that Luke says he didn't know what he was saying? Most of the time, Peter didn't know what he was saying. You see, the problem for Peter on this occasion and let's just go ahead and admit it, the problem for most of us is that we judge every experience, everything that we see or hear on the basis of how it affects us. So a sermon is a good sermon if it speaks to me. A church service is a good church service if it's uplifting to me. And this was good because it was all about Peter. But that was just the problem, folks, because it was not all about Peter. And it's not all about us. It is about the glory of God. What should have been Peter's response on this occasion? The same response that John gave in the first chapter of Revelation when he sees the glorified Christ. He said, I fell on my face as though dead. 
And then there's this other response that he gives. This response about, let us build three booths. I mean, what in the world is that all about? These were heavenly beings. And he wants to build three booths, three tents? What's Peter thinking? Peter, again, is thinking the same thing that you and I are thinking. How do I stay up here on the mountain? How do I stay up here in the glory and the majesty? See, Peter knew that there is glory, there is splendor, there is power up here on the mountain, but down there in the valley there is suffering and self-denial and death. He knew the minute, he had that little niggling voice in the back of his head, he knew the minute that Jesus came down off the mountain and stepped on the road, that road was going to take him inexorably toward the cross, and Peter was expected to follow, and he didn't want that. Much better to stay up here on the mountain, capture the moment, enjoy the glory. That's what we want as Christian people, isn't it? We want to stay up there. We don't want to think about the suffering, the self-denial, the cross, the loss, and so we'll do everything we can to capture the moment. We'll entertain ourselves. We'll engage in retail therapy. Whatever it is, just don't think about the cross. But I want you to notice that Jesus did not remain up there on the mountain. He did not remain up there in glory because Jesus knew that down in the valley there is a world that is perishing. And so he set aside his glory. He veiled himself in frail human flesh and he came down and mounted the arms of the cross for us men and for our salvation and he calls on his followers to do the same. For it's in losing our lives that we save them. So there is this alteration. There is this conversation. There is this reaction. The final act in this mountaintop drama is the coming of this cloud and a great declaration. Verse 34, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. If you've ever done any serious mountain climbing, you know that clouds on the tops of mountains are not all that unusual. It's a common occurrence, and it's nothing to be afraid of. But we're told that when this particular cloud came, the disciples were terrified. It's interesting to note that the verb that Luke uses here for the, crowd, the cloud overshadowing the disciples, it's the same verb that he uses earlier in this gospel to describe the coming of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary at the time of the Incarnation. 
And that's why the disciples were afraid when this cloud came, because they recognized this was no ordinary cloud. This was God Almighty coming. This was the Shekinah glory cloud that had filled the temple whenever God was present. God was approaching. And when God approached, God spoke, and this is what He said. He said, this is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. Now, if there was any doubt whatsoever in the minds of the disciples as to who Jesus was, up to this point, it was dispelled from here on out. <laughs> and the text says that as quickly as the cloud came, it departed, and Jesus was found alone. Jesus was alone. I suppose if I could distill the message of the transfiguration into just one thing, this would be it. It's all about Jesus alone. It is Jesus Christ alone. Over the course of the past several weeks, we've been talking a great deal about C.S. Lewis. Lewis gets a lot of airtime around here. But sometimes when we talk about one individual so much, I think we run the risk of making that individual the subject rather than the object. We have to be very careful because, folks, it's not about C.S. Lewis. It's not about Martin Luther or John Calvin or Thomas Cranmer or, for that matter, Moses and Elijah. Those are important men. We should listen to them. We should learn from them. But when all is said and done, folks, it's all about Jesus Christ alone. As Christians, as we look out on life, it is Jesus alone who should fill our perspective. Jesus alone, who up there on the mountain was shining in resplendent glory and majesty because He is the true God. Jesus Christ, who veiled Himself in human flesh and came down into the mess of this life to die for us and for our salvation and provide the great spiritual deliverance from our bondage. It is Jesus Christ alone who has the answers to all of your problems and who is the only answer for the salvation of the world. It is Jesus alone. Will you listen to Him? Will you follow Him? Follow Him all the way to the cross and beyond to the glory and the majesty. That hymn that we just sang a moment ago put it so well. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. And the light of His glory and grace. It is Jesus alone. Amen.